This is Five and Nine, a podcast at the crossroads of magic, work, and economic justice. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 1. My mother told me long ago, no matter what your grief or don't let your worries show in any case. What would my life be like if I stopped hating the parts of me that are special or unique and I actually celebrated them? I've always had this attitude of, if I don't know something, you could always learn it. Not only can you learn it, but if you don't know something, reach out to the folks who you do know, because your network is your net worth, as one of my friends always says, which Hmm. I do think is true. Hi, everyone. This is Anna on Shalmina. This is Dorothy Santos with Five and Nine. We are thrilled to welcome you back to Five and Nine. Season two is all about transitions. As fall sets in in the Northern Hemisphere and spring in the South, Five and Nine is looking at change in all its forms, leaving jobs, changing industries, starting new paths, and the wisdom that tarot and magic have to offer in a world that feels to be ever in flux. Today for the full moon season, we kick off season two, episode one, with Sydney Ballou. Sydney is a former academic, a writer, producer for the HBO Now show Legendary, and a proud member of the House of Extravaganza. And he has a new book that he's begun working on called Undeniable, a history of voguing, ballroom, and how it changed my life and the world at Crown Publishing Group. We have a great discussion lined up about how Sydney has navigated his career turns, how he leaned on his network throughout those changes, with all the anxiety and uncertainty that entailed. We'll talk about the body, the liberatory power of ballroom, and the importance of joy and rest. And of course, we'll end with a tarot reading. The music you hear in this episode is I Should Worry and Get Wrinkles, performed by Ada Jones in 1913. All the media we reference, images of the tarot cards, and links to Sydney's work can all be found at thisis5and9.com. So Sydney, one of the reasons we wanted to have you on the show is the number of career changes you've had. You're really jumping between academia, television writing, um, producing, now you have a book, and you're a dancer. How has that been like for you to navigate these career changes, especially that transition from academia into your current work and the jump between different professional circles? I love this question. So interesting because... Uh... <laughs> When you first brought it up, I was like, oh, no, am I being scolded for <laughs> not being like <laughs> these boomers who will, like, have a job for their entire lives? And, like, you know, so many of them literally spent, like, 30, 40 years at a company for their entire lives. And right. I think for a lot of millennials, and I imagine also for Gen Z coming up, it just, like, the reality of our lives is it's nothing like that, <laughs> you know? How has it been? I mean, to be honest... It's been obviously lots of fun because I've always tried to front load my life with fun. I think what it really comes down to when I think about it is what my dear, dear cousin Kelly, who's like our smart cousin, I love her because she was always kind of like the older sister I wish I had Mm -hmm. because I used to hit her up for advice when I was in college. Uh, I was like a late bloomer in certain ways. I think when it came to choosing my major back then, I remember I would like kind of worry about it and... I'd call Kelly in sort of my darkest hour and be like, Kelly, everybody's pre-med, pre-law and pre-nothing. What, what am I doing? And she would always be like, you know what, Sid, just, just focus on what, what you like and don't worry about it. Things will work out. It took me a number of years to actually trust her perspective. I know, even though, again, she's like the smart cousin. <laughs> but, um, 
Yeah, it took me a minute to really sit with that. And I think for me, it, it was always about sort of chasing what I was interested in. And I've always had a various wide range of interests. And so in a way, it's it's almost like a lot of things have kind of started to fold on to each other or weave into each other. So for example, I mean, I went to college, I started in 2007 at the University of Pennsylvania. And that was like, deep in the Obama years of hope and change. And so I feel like there was kind of this move towards working in public policy, which I got into and was a policy major. I interned in UC on Capitol Hill and did things like that. Um, But I always had this kind of interest in French as a language, which was what I studied when I was both in college and in high school. And I was really good at that. So that's kind of what led me to landing in Europe because I did a year abroad in Paris. And around that time, again, this whole like public policy thing, I was super into studying energy policy. And I had visited Berlin when I was living in Paris and I was just dying to get back. And a professor that I had at Penn was like, Sid, you should like, Germany is really great for renewable energy. You're interested in environmental policy, energy policy. Why don't you go there? So that's kind of what led me there. Even though back then in undergrad, I started out wanting to be a screenwriter. So it was just kind of like, oh, that interested me. I took a class, wasn't particularly great at the class, but our teacher had always told us, you know what, guys, you should go out, live life, come back. You can always come back to writing. So in a way, I always kind of had that in my back pocket as I was kind of like traipsing through Europe and the world. I'll just say the short end of it is these things started to kind of come back in different ways. And I feel like I've been able to kind of make it work for me in the way that they've come together. I think so many times when we're talking to people who've made these like amazing career leaps, the the retrospective, it, it looks like, okay, this all kind of came together. But you touched on something important, which is that there's anxiety about that or uncertainty. And how did it feel like when you, you know, incredible, you're thinking about energy policy and then now you're working in film. How did that feel for you, jumping into different kind of career fields? It's funny, the full story, I guess. Oh, I, and as I said, I've lived like multiple lives, I realize, <laughs> which I think already happens yeah. when you're trans. Like we you know, right, have right. like multiple lives as trans people. And then on top of it, there's all the kind of different phases of my life that I've had up until this point. To at least answer your first question about the fear or worry I'm naturally an extrovert. So for me, processing a lot of my thoughts always involves talking to other people. I know for everybody, that may not be the case. A lot of people like to just sort of, you know, solemnly make their choices about things. But I don't know, for some reason, just my, my way of being is I just love to talk to people and I like to talk things out. So, and I also have, I don't even know where I learned this skill I'm trying to think, but I've always had this attitude of if I don't know something, you could always learn it. Not only can you learn it, but if you don't know something, reach out to the folks who you do know because your network is your net worth, as one of my friends always says, which Hmm. I do think is true. Also, Berlin was phenomenal because when I visited there, when I studied abroad in Paris, I loved that it was everything that Paris wasn't. It was cheap. It was, Hmm. you know, just like full of parties and house music and super queer people who just didn't care. I just was like, yes, I want to be part of this. So when I got there, I mean, I was doing research at the Free University in Berlin, 
I kind of fell into the ballroom scene while I was living out there because I had this German non-binary roommate, pole dancer as well. <laughs> and I remember we were kikiing about Paris is Burning one day, just kind of, you know, quoting the film like you do. I feel like that's the queer millennial thing. Mm -hmm. um, today, <laughs> today I'm like, oh, are the kids just quoting legendary and pose? Like, I wonder what's, what are the, mm. what are the cool quotes or is it just memes? But anyway, mm. <laughs> uh, back then in 2011, <laughs> it was, you know, you'd quote the movie and we were just kind of doing that and laughing about it. And my roommate was like, you know, Sid, you could take a voguing class here. And I was mm -hmm. gagging. I was like, what? This is the whitest place on earth. What is voguing <laughs> doing in Germany? Get out of town. But um, yeah, it turned out there is a, well, today, very thriving scene. But back then it was kind of burgeoning. There's this woman, Georgina. Uh, today, she's the mother of the House of St. Laurent or their chapter in Berlin, in Germany. And back then she was a dancer choreographer, like a lot of dancer choreographers around the world. They'll save up their money, go to New York for the summer, take a bunch of dance classes. And then oftentimes they'll like fall into the ballroom scene somehow. Somebody takes them to a ball or they like to take a voguing class from somebody. And so she just fell in love with the culture and wanted to bring it back to Germany. And so she was hosting the first ever ball in Germany that year, the Berlin Voguing Out Festival. It's uh, very exciting because I'm actually going to the like 10 year anniversary in a couple of weeks, which feels oh, incredible wow. to know like Amazing. I was there mm -hmm. when it all began. But she would bring icons, legends, pioneers, people from New York over to the US to not only judge balls, but also give workshops. And like working with her totally changed my life. I mean, I was, this is pre-transition. I identified as a, a cute little butch lesbian. I was in my baby dyke years, my bow ties and my little curly top hair. And I remember I still held a lot of shame around my masculinity back then because I think I felt uh, as like a butch growing up in a very feminine household that I kind of failed at femininity. And I thought voguing was a way to kind of reclaim that. But when we did the workshop, Georgina was like, you know, Sid, you're really good at the masculine stuff. And I was like, yeah, I know. I'm trying to like fix that. <laughs> and she was like, well, you know, maybe you should lean into it. It's, you know, it's a great thing. And, and she totally just changed the way that I thought about myself of like, wow, what, if, what would my life be like if I stopped hating the parts of me that are special or unique and I actually celebrated them? And in so many ways, ballroom gave me that space to do that. So after then, did a, I walked a ball in Dusseldorf and won grand prize. I was like deep into ballroom culture. But then I was invited to speak on a panel to talk about Paris's burning. And this was in a class with Sarah Ahmed, this big gender studies professor at Goldsmiths at the time. And I remember I thought, oh no, what if somebody asked me a question I don't have the answer to? So at the time, I was in the house of Omni, and I had reached out to the founder of the house, this guy, Kevin Omni, who lives in New Jersey. And, you know, I just thought, let me just ask him some questions to be on the safe side if somebody throws a curveball at this panel. And I thought our conversation would last for, you know, maybe 10 minutes, 30 minutes max. We talked for like three hours. And that was what changed a lot, because then it was like, oh, I'm hearing stuff that I've never heard anybody talk about. There's all this history that this person is telling me. None of this is written down. And I was thinking, my God, who, who is documenting this? And so that was kind of the pivot for me or the transition was like basically my social life overlapping with my professional life.
And so I ended up doing this master's thesis on, I was looking at how the geography of New York City shaped the ballroom community in New York. And so what I would do is I did these oral history, walking, talking interviews with icons, pioneers, legends. I said, take me to a part of New York City you think is most relevant to the history of the ballroom community and tell me about the history within the space. I smiled and left and never even sighed. Then she blessed me by. I didn't moan or cry. I gazed at them amazed and then I cried. I should worry and get wrinkles. Sydney, I have so much <laughs> to say in response to the beautiful storytelling that you've graced us with. I mean, I don't even know where to start. I will say that you mentioned a few of the things I love. I really love Sarah Ahmed's work. Mm. I talked to Anna about Paris's burning just before this. Mm. You know, it goes back to kind of what you prioritize. You know, you prioritize having fun. And mm. I think if we look at, you know, older sister, cousin, Kelly, and in doing what you want ultimately kind of leads you to the things that you are meant to do. You know, when I was younger, I come from this immigrant Filipino family, this little queer kid that didn't know it yet, but growing into who I was as, as an adult and I look back, a lot of the ways that I understood ballroom, because my mom actually said, you should do ballroom dancing, but not mm. ballroom as to me, the ballroom you're talking about and that you have done and have so much expertise in, that's the ballroom I wanted to do. I did not want to do the tango. I did not want to do foxtrot. I did not want to do any of that. But the reason why my mom suggested that when I was younger, it's a way of disciplining the body. Mm. It's a way of understanding that culturally, if you are legible in a particular way, there's some kind of cachet to that. You, You think of like culturally fitting into a space, a place with people, and you do that also through being cultured. And I only realize that now as an, a full-fledged adult, like, oh, my mom wanted me to play the piano. She put me in tap dancing. She put me in ballet. Mm. She wanted me to do ballroom. I said, I'm good. No. <laughs> and, you know, and I remember first watching Paris is Burning when I was, you know, in my 20, in my early 20s and thinking mm. to myself, that's dancing. And so I think the question I have for you to pivot a little bit, to focus a little bit more on the, on the ballroom is, and this culture and, and your work with legendary and is in what ways did the ballroom culture actually remind you of not just reclamation, but, oh no, we're not disciplining the body. The body can move the way that it needs to and the way that it wants to. Maybe a, a moment in time or moments that you kind of realize, no, this is it. This is what is telling me that my body exists in this space and I could take up however much fucking room I want. Mm, I love that. Also, Dorothy, I'm surprised your your mom wasn't trying to get you into line dancing. I've been in enough <laughs> Fili- Filipino <laughs> communion celebrations, confirmation yes. parties, darling. <laughs> Okay, because listen, I grew up on the north side of Chicago. Or I grew up in the suburbs. Oh, I had so okay. many, so many Filipino moms <laughs> who would drive me to CCD because I also grew up Catholic. So I'm oh very familiar. Okay, I'm okay. yeah. You know, I'm gonna hit you up for that lumpia, some pancit yes, when I visit you in the day. You, you better. I, I'm ready for the adobo, <laughs> chicken, and all of it. Period. Yes. Um, yeah, and it's so interesting you say it too, because I also feel like dancing is such a big part of Filipino culture, and I've been 
so curious about where that comes from. I'm gonna put a pin that. That might be a conversation for another another time that we should talk about because I yeah, there's oh, absolutely. a lot of a lot of, lot of beauty there. Just to give listeners like a context. So ballroom culture, right? It's called ballroom because in New York City, where these events would happen, you know, a ball is basically a place where you have different categories. People compete for cash prizes and trophy. There's bragging rights. There's kind of like different groups that compete against each other. And the groups are called houses and the house is a mother and a father. And, you know, the children of the house were competitors. And um, yeah, and it's hosted at this event called a ball. Now it's called a ballroom because this whole culture began in New York City in Harlem. And it goes way back even to the 19th century. The way ballroom is today has its roots very much in drag competitions of the 50s and 60s, even before then. But really, things kind of take off in the 70s in New York City. So just to give folks a context of when we say ballroom, we're talking about, you know, not only like runway categories but and, you know, other things related to fashion where people may compete, but also things like voguing, which most folks are familiar with. As I said, coming up, I think coming out as queer, which I did in college, it was around like my freshman year, I had my QTPOC folks, my two dear friends, these two, two butch queens, two gay, cis, queer identified men of color, my good friends, Emmanuel and Clarence back then. I remember they would watch Paris is Burning all the time. They would watch YouTube clips of people voguing and we would watch it and we would laugh about it. I just always thought, you know, that is so cool. It is so cool what these folks do and the way they move and the, the way that they're so not only unapologetic, but that there's an artistry and a mastery to it. While at the same time, you know, this kind of like hyper expression of gender, especially when it comes to trans women, or as we call them in the community, femme queens, when femme queens who really are the originators of ballroom, their movement, their style of dance, the way that they just completely rethink what the body can do. I just, I was just so enamored by all of that. I wanted to do that. I was like, okay, how can I do that? I think what's kind of interesting with voguing, especially as a style of movement, right, is called voguing. The idea is that you are moving your body to the music like you're taking a, a glamorous picture, an editorial shot in the in Vogue, in Vogue magazine. So it's meant to be glamorous, beautiful. And I think for everybody, that's something different. You know, everybody has their own version of what that is. In my mind, I'm like, I am Tyson Beckford in 95. You know what I'm saying? That's the space that I go to. I go to the space of any elegant man from the Harlem Renaissance, any anybody from that period and beyond. The men in Ebony or Jet Magazine that I used to look at when I was a kid. Yeah, for me, it was about reclaiming my body in a lot of ways. You know, as I mentioned, I was shamed around being masculine in our house. I wasn't out as a lesbian because I didn't even know. So in a way, it was a way for me to find myself through the movement, through just really learning how to own my own body and do it in a way that wasn't apologetic because I think in a lot of ways I was constantly apologizing. That's also part of the power of ballroom as a culture and voguing specifically as a style of dance is you just bring it. It's like, bam, this is who I am, unfiltered, no cropping, <laughs> no, you know what I'm saying? Like it's, it's just raw. And I think it's also part of why it's so beautiful. Mm. Your work is so much about the body, working with the body. And it, it just seems so important, especially for queer folks, right? Owning the body, 
being present with the body, loving the body, it's something I've been thinking about as its own form of magic. That shaming that so many of us experience that you shared as well as one of the ways you counter that is by moving away from prescribed roles for the body and instead finding your own beauty, finding your own power, finding your own image, right? Mm. Truly alchemical. It really is. You know, and Dorothy, when you brought up, you know, coming out, obviously it's so hard for a lot of us. I mean, I also come from like immigrant mom. My mother's from Trinidad and Tobago and my father is from uh, the South side of Chicago. My mom is of Indian origin and mm-hmm. as are many people in the West Indies. And mm-hmm. I think it's interesting because carnival culture was always a big part of our culture, like growing up. We used to drive up to Toronto from Chicago, where they have this huge festival called Carabana. And that is the biggest carnival celebration outside of Trinidad and Tobago, which has like the biggest carnival in the world. At least the part of being Trini from my mother, I think that I inherited was that sense of you know, there's a time for work, but then there's also time for play. And that's also an important mm. part of just being alive and being in the world. It's okay to have, you know, a little rum, a little rum punch and a wine and thing. And what are the decisions that I want to make? I think there's one, a sense of uh, agency in doing that. And two, also defining what that movement of the body is for yourself, especially for, for queer folks, but especially for trans folks. We make so many very deliberate decisions about our bodies that I think so many cis people would just gag at, <laughs> you know, That's like right. yeah. literally like top surgery. Do I want my nipples sewed back on or not? <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, or even how do I want my body to look and, or, you know, or how do I want to feel? I think there's like a lot of body work that's like embedded in our being sometimes it can seem like a hindrance but i think there's a lot of affordances to the beauty of that experience as well This, this podcast is about work, it's about economic justice, but it's also, like you said, it's about play. Tarot um, is so much about play and playing with narrative, with images. Anything you've been thinking about? Um, are there any things you're puzzling through right now or anything that where a tarot reading might be helpful? Ooh, oh my gosh, you all came at such an interesting time. I mean, normally I'd be like, no, let's just do a general one. Hmm. I mean, I'm asking some questions about the book right now that I'm like trying to get some clarity on. I also saw it was uh, Mercury's retrograde today. So yes, it's just started. That's right. Oof, let me tell you something. I am feeling that <laughs> retrograde. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's there. It's there. Welcome for a few weeks. It's very interesting because I've been learning a lot. Like obviously my book just sold. I've been learning a lot about this process of um, how do these things actually get made? <laughs> you know, like, we all read books and, you know, you're just like, well, they're there. It's like, there's like all this back end logistics that happens. Yeah, there's so much, right? Yeah. <laughs> I know. And just like books things. Books are hard. Like, yeah, they books are. are hard. No shade. Yeah. I totally get why not everybody's writing a book. I'm just like, well, man, why have I tasked myself with such a, hmm. such an arduous yeah. task? Basically, my big question that I'm dealing with right now is what are the visuals that are crucial to telling this story? I'm sorting through questions around that about, you know, what is the futurity of this project that I am interested in? You know, as I mentioned, when I first got started, it was about 
I want to make sure my community's voices are on the books because I was very frustrated in academia because at the time I had seen so many people writing master's theses, just PhD theses, like mostly in gender studies, women's studies, nine, nine times out of 10, it was like white people, mainly white cis women. And what gagged me was when I looked at these things, none of these people ever actually consulted members of the community. And I feel like we live in the information age today and you don't really have an excuse at this point about just talking to people from the community. So that was my impetus for doing this work was like, I want my community not only to be on the books, but to narrate their own stories. And so it's been like this six year journey to get to this point of beginning this deep research. And I guess I'm just looking for guidance about how I want to approach that. Ooh, we well, Sydney, you came to the right place because just like a cooking show, while you Ooh. were talking, I went ahead and pulled three cards and Ooh. I based the reading off of what Anna Shawe and I started the first season off with, which is a reading, but we we kind of took the three card, the typical three card spread of past, present, and future, and we changed it to seed, root, and garden. Ooh. So what you what you got for the seed card what's the kernel? What's the kind of thing that we need to seed? You know, when you know what you want to plant, you obviously have to have the seed to plant that thing. And you got the four of swords. The four of swords is essentially about rest. (laughs) So what does it mean to actually seed rest? The element of the swords is associated with air, which is then associated with intellect, rationality, logic. So when we think about, and for those, um, that are listening, we're using the Rider Waite Tarot deck, and it is a person who is at rest. They have a sword across their body. Their kind of hands are folded, and then above them are three swords hanging on the wall that are point. The swords are pointing down. So again, this is kind of directing that energy down. So how are we? How do you rest? How do you rest after after loss? And so moving on to root. So if you think about what do you want to grow. Mm. Tarot never lies. Okay? Uh-oh. Dorothy, like, give it really to me. It really doesn't. <laughs> give it to me, Dorothy. Let's go. I'm, I'm, I'm nervous. What, what's happening? What's the root? So the you have a lot of intellectual logic air energy in this spread, but the root is basically the two of swords. So making, mm. you know, a lot of people read the two of swords as having to make a decision, mm. um, sometimes between two difficult choices. In the background of this figure is a body of water. The waters are calm. So it's a lot of emotion that goes into thinking about this decision that you have to make. But these two swords, they're crisscrossed in front of the body of a person who is actually blindfolded. Mm. So again, they have to search their feelings. They have to search out. um, And that's in concert and combination with their intellect. So, Mm. you know, for example, you brought up visuals, you know, you brought up the criticality of telling the stories in a way that is, I don't want to use the word authentic, because I think that is, there's something kind of like, that's slippery. It's almost like the stories just tell themselves. Mm. But when you're making those decisions, it could come with some frustration because you're mm. talking about visuals and some, you can't unsee things. Mm. So in my mind, what you're trying to root requires you to have some intention there. But this is the reason why you probably need to seed rest. Mm. Okay. <laughs> I, I like this. You're like, get off the emails. Stop emailing. <laughs> that is what yeah, I just yeah. heard. It's like, <laughs> sleep this weekend. Sleep on it. Yes. Let yes. it ride. Yes. Okay. I'm loving this. Yeah. I think also my agent and my lawyer will be happy. Noted. Noted. <laughs> I think, I think, and out of that rest, out of that rest, you're such a intellectual person, Sydney. 
what's interesting about the way the person in the two of swords holds the swords they're, they're covering their heart they're protecting their heart and mm-hmm. how do you open your heart mm-hmm. and are the decisions you're making are they just intellectual because so much of what you're saying about about ballroom and, and your own journey is about love i always see the two of swords as that that kind of push and pull between what the intellect wants to do but then also it's a, a book is a labor of love Mm. especially this book, especially the journey that you've just t- told us about. And I'm wondering how much you can allow that into the book to the extent mm. that you feel that, that, that that's safe, that you can do that, that that's comfortable. I love that. Oh my gosh. You, Anna, all, are, you, you just... all are giving me life, okay? Giving <laughs> <laughs> you life you podcast. Say... <laughs> Period. Anna, you just set this up beautifully because mm. the three-way call that okay. is happening between rest and protection of heart and logic and rationale the third card and anna you're gonna you're gonna laugh we always laugh when we do these readings where it's like tarot never lies it's the eight of pentacles anna do you want to take this and then maybe i can add yeah yeah wait this is this is for what again so we have the seed we have the root and what was this one garden the garden what you want to grow what you want to cultivate Ooh, i love this what are the conditions yeah yeah, the Eight of Pentacles. It's a figure that is hard at work. <laughs> um, the um, it's a figure sitting on a bench. So Pentacle is like a coin, and they represent earth energy, the work of, of labor, money, and the material world. And so it's a figure who's sitting on a bench, banging away at one of the Pentacles, and the other Pentacles are up a tree, and they're kind of lined up there, and you can see that they've been working, working at this for a good deal, a good deal of time, and it's. And it's such an interesting one because thinking about, um, especially this two of swords, I think of it as like someone who's at a crossroads making a difficult decision. But the conditions there is this person who's banging away, getting to work, doing the thing. I remember an early mentor um, says, you know, said to me about books, it's like every day just make sure there's a little more book. Mm. It could be a word, a sentence, just a little more book. Mm. And I think of that energy so much. Yeah, there's this meme I saw. I said, what makes a writer anxious? When no one sees their work or when someone sees their work, right? <laughs> For writers, we're always at that two of swords energy. We're always like, oh my goodness, is it this? Is it this? And I feel like the Eight of Pentacles, it's this figure who's just like focused, doing the thing. Has opened their heart and said, okay, I'm just going gonna, gonna to get to it. I'm going to step I'm gonna step out of my head, step out of my heart. And, and start writing, start start doing the thing. It's kind of what I see in this dialogue. First, a little moment of rest. What's growing is this kind of crossroads, this intersection that you're at. It's both intellect and heart. And then an encouragement, what, what can allow the garden that we can see with the book and that I see with so many writers is, is really that eight of pentacles, focusing, making sure there's more book and making those plans. And, and really, that's the joy. That's the joy of writing, which is so hard to get to. Um, because so many of us live with that two of swords energy. I mean, I would drop the mic, but I can't because it's the thing that's recording. <laughs> Dorothy, me, so. you need to go there, darling. This is, <laughs> drop that proverbial mic. Hello. That because what Anna said, plus a million, because it's very true. Really what the eight of pentacles is, it's really kind of the world saying like, we see you, Sydney Blue. Mm. The numerology also matters in tarot and eight is of action. So what you're doing is you're actually taking all of the things, the experiences. It's interesting. I got a visual in my head of you 
writing and then posing and then writing again and be like, okay, I'm ready. I'm posing. You know, it's like, you Mm. are ready. You know, the intervals, you know, when a certain like baseline is going to hit, like that's you. And I think Mm. when you've practiced, when you've honed your skill set, you know, it's so funny when I first read about your work and I was just like, yes, writer, yes, director, yes, voguer, yes, historian and archivist. The Eight of Pentacles speaks to, oh, this I'm I'm making these I'm making these pentacles. I'm crafting this thing. Oh, because I am the person that knows how to do that. That's what the Eight of Pentacles is actually about. Mm. You it, there there's no other person that can tell the stories that you tell other than you. Wow. Okay. Wow. I'm just like Whew. Okay. I didn't know it was giving super soul energy today because <laughs> this is, wow. I mean, there is no lie. I don't see the lie. Uh, this is <laughs> incredible. No, I appreciate that. And I appreciate you both recognizing that in the work and mm-hmm. also just in this uh, incredible orientation, you know, I just, I just feel like, especially with the way that you all approach your work, it just felt like such a beautiful time to kind of check in, take stock, and also look forward, which I feel like this is giving me 120%. So thank you for this. My God, I'm like, okay, I have my mandate. (laughs) We got the garden in the future. Okay, telling the stories that we haven't heard yet, which is true. And thank you. Thank you for that. My gosh. Yeah, no, listen, you all nailed it on the head. My goodness. I have to admit, I think this is my first time ever writing a book. Like, of course, I've written academic papers. So, you know, once you get into this certain mode, you know, you add a little theory here, sprinkle a little like, you know, whatever verbiage there. But I think the hard, hard work is doing this sort of internal deep dive because this yeah. book that I'm, yeah. I'm writing, which is called Undeniable, A History of Ballroom and Voguing and How It Changed My Life and the World, it's 50-50 memoir, so my story, my story of transition as a Black trans guy from the Midwest who somehow traveled the world and became a little up-and-coming legendary child in the ballroom scene. Um, and then also the history of this incredible culture that I'm part of, literally from 19th century to present day. What is this thing called ballroom? What is this thing called voguing? Where does it come from? It's very, very grounding to hear this from both of you of, you know, just ways of thinking about the future of not only, um, what's the word, not squeezing on too hard, I think is how I see it. Of like, you got to have that little play, I think. I noticed, for example, when I was in the process of, you know, the book went to auction. It was a very big auction. We had eight imprints bidding. In the end, I went with my incredible editor, Libby Burton, who's at Crown, along with this incredible brand strategist, Angela Ledgerwood, who's at Sugar 23. I'm so excited to work with them. But I know through this process, I I was nervous. I didn't know what I was doing. But I, one, trusted my book editor who I worked with, Alice Whitlam, who's amazing at Chain Agency, and also just trusted the process. And I think there was a point where I really started to have fun. I feel like when you start to have fun, that's when you, like, unclench, you know? And, like, <laughs> I do think the unclench opens up not only other orifices, but also... <laughs> I think it also opens you up to the world, you know, it's like so crucial. And I think that happens when you just let go of what your expectations are. And again, ultimately, I think with ballroom, I've walked, you know, a number of balls, that moment where you let go, where you are in that flow state of just being, 
I do think that's when things happen for you. I think that's when the portals open up and, and the world opens up to you. Five and Nine is an independent podcast and newsletter at the crossroads of magic, work, and economic justice. This show is produced by Dorothy Santos, Xiaowei Wang, and me, Anna Anshaomina, and it's hosted by Dorothy and Anna. Well, this podcast is always free if you enjoyed it. We invite you to buy us a virtual cup of coffee. You can subscribe on Substack for just $6 a month. Your generous support helps cover our production costs and honoraria for our guest speakers. Paying subscribers get access to additional content like how-tos, journaling prompts, tarot exercises, amongst other resources to support you in your work and your career. Find us at thisis5and9.com and on Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you listen to podcasts. The background music for our closing is Ain't We Got Fun, a foxtrot composed by Richard Whiting and performed by the Benson Orchestra of Chicago. This and the episode music are part of 400,000 sound recordings made available in the public domain this year. And it's all music that would have been popular during the time of the creation of the Rider-Waite-Smith deck, one of the most popular and influential tarot decks in the world. Thanks for listening, and we wish you comfort and ease in these times of great change and transition. Remember to breathe deeply, drink plenty of water, and take a moment of joy wherever and whenever you can.